Hello and welcome to Farmerama. Thank you to everyone who signed up to our Patreon last month or previously. We appreciate every one of you. Your support helps us to keep bringing you the stories of regenerative farming from around the world each month. If you'd like to join our growing Patreon family, please visit patreon.com forward slash Farmerama where you can choose your level of support. This month, we hear from a baker and a miller about the benefits of having a close relationship and what it takes to maintain it. Then, we head to Aotearoa, New Zealand, where a market gardener shares how important love and compassion are in his growing practice. And finally, we hear about some important research on the experience of black farmers in the UK. In early May, we headed to Nottingham for UK Grain Lab, a gathering of farmers, millers, bakers and scientists who are building a new grain system. While we were there, we spoke with Kate Hamlin, baker and founder of Hamlin Bread in Oxford, and David Howell, miller at Offley Mill in Staffordshire. Kate and David have developed a close working relationship, with David milling all the flour Kate bakes with at Hamlin. We asked them to share more about how and why they work together. My name is Kate Hamblin. I have a bakery in Oxford called Hamblin Bread and we use UK organic stone ground heritage flour. My name is David Howell. I'm from Offley Mill in Staffordshire, a water mill, and we produce stone ground flour um, and we produce cakes for her bakery. So we've always worked with the heritage wheat farmer John Letts, who has worked with David for a long time and we've always used him in his his grain in conjunction with organic modern varieties and initially we were getting organic modern flour from another supplier but uh, you know due to pallets breaking not arriving being arriving in poor condition uh, John Letts suggested that we buy organic modern grain directly from one of his friends, get it stored at David's mill in a silo and David could mill it fresh for us and therefore deliver not only the heritage flour but all our flour. Initially taking on the work with Heritage Harvest and Kate was, was there to supplement as a business opportunity but um, in the last five years not only does it do that, um, it uh, it purely keeps a water wheel going, which is obviously the heritage roots of the mill, um, which is something I, I really want to keep going. But then you start to get involvement in the wheat and the grains and understanding of them. Uh, and even more so this last few months uh, with this war in Ukraine, um, I am completely convinced it's the way forward because fertiliser is not going to be available uh, and a climate change. We need to be looking at, some, at, a, at an alternative. It means that I have control over much more of the process so I can identify the farmers that I want to buy grain from, um, hopefully in the future have more of an influence over the types of grain and um, it means that we also have grain security so the grain that we buy stored at David's we know that that's there so we're we're less vulnerable to fluctuations in flour prices or, for example, during the pandemic when it was there was a, a, a national flour shortage. 
we had this security because we knew that we had all of this grain in silo and that it was just going to keep on coming because David was going to keep on milling it and delivering it. Um, the flour is also very fresh because David mills it the day before he delivers it. So that's gar- guaranteed. Um, and there's just complete transparency in the whole process. I think the farmer should need to move more to the, the better quality and look at the smaller businesses uh, to combine with it and benefit them rather than the great big feed mills that are taking over things. Um, we've got some good farmers, good land and good equipment. Um, a little bit more understanding with the smaller business, I think that would be the key structure for forward. To, to, and especially look at alternatives to fertiliser. I think that's the key structure for survival of the economy and the environment at the moment. In a way, it's it's so simple what me and David have, um, but it's it's very holistic and it's very complete. And I think that that could be replicated in various iterations ac- across the country. There's a lot of people with a lot of good intentions who are working either on the farming side um, or on the baking side um, or on the milling side. And it's just about knowing that you can join those dots that you can you can create a new model of working together and it takes a bit of commitment between one person and another it might take a slight financial risk um, but it also takes a little bit of imagination to think that another another way is possible you have to have full trust in each other um, the trust in, from my perspective, that I'm constantly investing to try and get the best product to Kate possibly. But whilst doing that, I need to have 100% faith that the customer is going to continue with you to do that. I couldn't work with our Kate's arrangement with everybody. I'd have to have somebody that I trust completely. It's a time thing that's been built up that obviously we're both very proud of. Um, it can work in the right hands, but it needs the same same commitment from each person. We're both very pragmatic. We both have small businesses, and it has to work not only on an ideological level, but also on a financial level as well. And I think that some, sometimes that's what's that's what's missing from the wider conversation. And um, yeah, I, I guess I just want to communicate that it is a totally viable way of doing business. The dirty word. <laughs> I think things have come on leaps and bounds in the last 10 years. 10 years ago, OK, the grains weren't as good. Um, you couldn't see a future in them. Um, the way things are progressing now, I could see a future in them. Kate's obviously pushing forward all the time, uh, and it wouldn't take a lot for another couple of bakeries like Kate to come in and take account for a lot more of our work. Um, so. Yeah, I'm hopeful for the future of Heritage Grains. I think it's, I'm convinced it's the way forward. Just make contact with people. Just get in touch with people. Just talk to people and just put yourself in an uncomfortable position to move things forward. Just, just do it. Just do something. Jake Clark is the head farmer at Organic Market Garden in Tamaki Mukuro, Auckland, in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Organic Market Garden, or OMG, is a model farm set up by For the Love of Bees, 
a charity that aims to heal ecosystems and provide healthy food to local people through a network of regenerative organic urban farms. Fellow Farmeramer Olivia Oldham spoke to Jake about OMG. Kia ora, my name is Jake Clark and I'm the head farmer here at OMG. Um, OMG stands for Organic Market Garden and we're a urban farm that operates on about a 500 square meter plot of land and 320 square meters of that is growing space. Um, we provide 41 vegetable boxes each week to um, locals living in the community. We also have a compost CSA and a seedling CSA and we produce around 300 packets each year um, of, of seedlings, uh, 75 per season. You've come over from Yorkshire, is yeah, that right? Yeah, that's right. I yeah. worked in sort of ecology and land restoration yeah. in the what, Yorkshire Dales. What do you reckon is the biggest difference between what you could do over there and what you can do here in Auckland? Here in Auckland, we can grow all year round. So um, in, in summer, we're, we're growing um, peppers and pumpkins and uh, cucurbits and tomatillos, corn. And then in winter, we focus more on brassicas, celeriacs and celeries and alliums. Whereas back in Yorkshire, you, you'd be lucky to get a harvest from your vegetable garden in the middle of winter. I think from my mum's garden, the only thing that would be able to harvest in winter was sorrel. You know, you'd go out under on a frosty morning and the only thing that would still be there is sorrel. Everything else would be dead. So we've got massive potential here to grow food all year round. My favorite thing to grow hands down is definitely pumpkins. Um, they have a totally unique way about them and you, you can try and control them and you can try and send them a different way, but they'll do what they want. And it's such a, a visceral reaction to the elements and the sun with their big leaves that act like solar panels and capture sugars. And then you get these giant fruits which form on the vines and they swell up and grow almost before your eyes and and then from a winter storage pumpkin then you can just put them away and bring them out in the middle of winter and carve into it and it's like for me it's like carving into the sun you know you get that the, those lovely sugary smells of summer and it's just yeah from not even growing but also eating it's just i love pump, growing pumpkins it's <laughs> so much fun <laughs> At OMG, we're, we're organic, we're regenerative, um, and we, are, uh, we use the term biology first. So we prioritize um, the biology, the microbiology, the birds, the bees, um, and what a lot of that relies on um, is uh, no-tilling and polycropping. So because we're a small site, um, we can't do monoculture because there's not enough room to do a row of cabbages and then a row of pumpkins and then a row of zucchini we have to intertwine it all and stack the crops in amongst each other like an ecosystem another huge aspect to this project is to mitigate climate change through growing our food um, i think a lot uh, what we get taught today is that our food production and our agriculture is a burden on our planet when it can actually be a way to restore our planet. Um, so yeah, the, the storing of carbon within the soil is a huge aspect which we'd really like to focus on. And that's where the no-tilling comes into play um, because with tilling, we damage the soil, we damage the fungi, the microbiology, and we release carbon into the atmosphere and lose its moisture holding capacity. Um, 
but by not telling it and leaving it undisturbed, we can leave it to do its natural thing. We can increase the carbon in the soil, increase the biology, um, and then it becomes a carbon sink. When you're growing, you're either degrading or damaging the ecosystem or contributing to it. So we really want to teach people to contribute to a healthier ecosystem. I think from my perspective and my viewpoint is that um, growing up in the UK and then moving over to New Zealand um, and both of them being very capitalist um, countries focused around um, money and economic growth, um, we forget about sort of our own joys and our own love and compassion for that's involved in growing and gardening so an example is right now we're here in the polytunnel um and there's i don't know how to put science behind it there's no sort of um there's no way to sort of calculate it but when i sow a tray of seedlings and seeds when i'm involved when i'm 100 percent focused in that process when i'm there um making sure that each um seed that i put into the tray is that has my undivided attention i have excellent germination rate when i'm rushing and when i'm not focusing um when there's other things on my mind the germination rate isn't as great and it shows in the seeds so i don't know how you calculate that with science but there is something there um and also it feels nice to be compassionate it feels nice to have um love at the center of the project uh, it's a, a rare thing but also for me it the polycropping celebrates diversity and celebrates um, sort of the wonderful interconnectedness of life. And um, it here at the farm, it really mirrors um, sort of the, the cultural diversity that Auckland has. And it shows and represents what a beautiful thing diversity can be, how we all have our different traits and, and we all bring different things to the table and together we can be this wonderful healthy ecosystem um, so that's what I reflect on a lot that's what I think about when I'm gardening and trying to incorporate as many species as possible um, and that's I, I like sharing that story For the Love of Bees has a number of other projects, including community composting and creating pollinator habitats. Jake also told us about the Earth Workers program, a week-long intensive course teaching people from around New Zealand how to grow using OMG's Biology First regenerative principles. In the future, the hope is to build on the Earth Workers program to set up many other farms around the country which can act as learning hubs. Finally, we wanted to share a preview from our upcoming series, Cultivating Justice. We've been working on the series in partnership with Land in Our Names and the Land Workers Alliance Out on the Land group. Cultivating Justice shares and celebrates the voices of queer, trans, black, brown and neurodiverse people in the agroecological food and farming movement. The first episode will be launched next month, so look out for that end of June. In this snippet, I speak to fellow farmer Dora Taylor about her master's research on the experiences of black farmers in the UK. Quite early on in the research, you talk about rural spaces are overwhelmingly white. And then you say, as Beth Collier points out, 
black absence in green spaces is incorrectly interpreted through a colonial perspective as rooted in a lack of interest in or appreciation of nature. Black people enjoying nature are seen as exceptions. I would love you to talk a little bit about that and that finding and also what you recognized in yourself as well or what you communicated. So I think there is this framing. We think of black communities as being mainly in cities, which they are, but the reasons behind that are actually very structural. It's because that's where migrants were kind of put when they came to the UK and there's a lot of racism that exists in rural spaces and there is this kind of historical narrative around English culture which has this idea that diversity is a very new thing and that historically everyone was white and that people very recently came here and kind of disturbed that That narrative is definitely there, even though when I say it, it sounds very extreme. Actually, that is really there in the way that, like, especially English culture, I think, is. But I had quite a strange experience, I suppose, when I was doing this research, because I grew up in a rural area of the UK with a lot of privilege. And I'm very light-skinned, mixed-race, And I realised that even I had kind of internalised that idea of black people being exceptions in nature, even though I, as a black person, had enjoyed this natural environment for my whole life. Yeah, and I think it really made me realise quite how powerful those cultural narratives are, that I was kind of discovering them in myself and having to kind of check myself when people I was speaking to were talking about their connection to and love of nature to really like acknowledge that I was having this reaction as well of being like oh that's unusual when it's really not it's just that black people are kind of excluded actively from rural spaces which means that you might not see black faces as much but that connection to nature is definitely not lacking definitely I recognize it in myself as well that I 100% have believed that narrative for many years and without even noticing that I'm believing it so really appreciate you drawing that out and reflecting back on all of us some of these things we don't even notice are written in our brains in our culture and how how destructive they are actually as well I think that's the other thing we have to acknowledge What do you think this research tells us about the situation in the UK today? It demonstrates how little attention has been paid to black growers as a community from like the wider alternative farming space. I think that it's come at a time where that attention is really picking up, actually. But when I was doing my research, it was really difficult because there was very little information. I think I found maybe two texts on black British growers in the UK. Obviously, academic writing is not the only form of information, but I think it is a good snapshot into how much attention has been paid to that dynamic. I think we need to be careful of framing the apparent growth in black farmers and growers as a new phenomenon 
It's just that they haven't been given as much support and airtime as other alternative farming spaces have. And I think although there are a relatively small number, I think we need to recognise that those traditions have been there for a really long time. Later on in the research, you talk about within the international African diaspora, providing food for the black community has historical significance as a form of black resistance. The strong tradition of black people growing food in the UK is not simply a form of diasporic reproduction of homeland conditions, but it's something which is embedded in who we are. British black growers focus on self-preservation, unity, and intergenerational learning. I don't know. I just felt like a lot of very powerful words are used there, and it, it does give this really strong visual of community and, and values and so I was wondering if maybe you'd like to just paint a picture of what it is that, you know, you felt and saw. Really, I felt so much joy and love and openness. I felt a real kind of flexibility and dynamic way of communicating and of learning that's really it's actually not set in stone at all. And I think the traditions that I was learning about are very porous. And the way that I was being taught when I was like volunteering with people and kind of like learning about the different ways to grow things, it's so open. And the way that they were talking to me about the plants and like the way that plants have emotions and like I felt a flexibility and dynamism and like freshness that I think is sometimes lacking in other parts of the space. Could people use the results of your research to inform what they do or is there even a, a call to action for people in the alternative food movement? I actually think that the work is already happening. I think that this research came at a really interesting time even in the six months since I submitted this there's been a real growth in the way that black farmers are being incorporated into the wider alternative farming space I think there's been a lot of momentum around building networks and like getting stories out there I think that there's definitely a need to be more comfortable with maybe the like uncomfortable realities of how entrenched our perceptions are of the place of black people in nature. I think that's a really ingrained thing that everyone should be actively working on. This episode of Farmerama was made by me, Abby Rose, Olivia Oldham, and Susie McCarthy. A big thanks to the rest of the Farmerama team, Joe Barrett, Katie Revel, Fran Bailey, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, and Dora Taylor. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. Toodaloo!